Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. Andy, it's just us today. What's gone wrong, Cam? Have, have we exhausted all our, you know... Have we made our way down the list and, and arrived at zero? No, no, we have got some great guests coming up. Do we? Oh, okay. All right. So what are we going to do this half hour then? <laughs> well, unfortunately, uh, the listeners are stuck with just us. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Well, uh, what are we going to talk about then, Cam? Do well, we I did, have any ideas? I did ask the listeners four questions. Uh-huh. And so that sort of puts all of the responsibility for the quality of this program onto them. Oh, excellent. Smart, Cam, smart. <laughs> What's the first question? Or do you have uh, a question? Question number one, Andy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the co-opting of and attacks on labour unions, both here, there and everywhere, and the agitators and motivations behind it? What do I, what do I think about it? Yeah, what do you reckon? I, I reckon capital should stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, knock it on the head. But no, I think it's, well, I, I think about the essential and driving dynamic of any capitalist society which is the uh, uh, contradiction between capital and labour and insofar as unions have been formed and serve to defend the interests of labour, you know, they're a good thing, but otherwise this is a central dynamic and the only means by which uh, that dynamic can be suppressed is through uh, the overthrow of um, capitalist society. (laughs) I mean, you know, attacks upon unions are constant. I mean, and it makes perfect sense why that would be the case. I suppose if there's a, a positive kind of element to it is if unions are under attack, then they're probably doing a reasonable job, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want unions not to be under attack because if they're not under attack, then they pose no threat and um, that's no good. So, you know, I mean, but, yeah, of course, there's there's better and worse unions. I think, I mean, you know, in contemporary Australia, the union movement and the labour movement generally is at a – historically low ebb in terms of, you know, across by any measure. So I don't, but that's, I doubt that's going to last. I don't see how it could, you know. Uh, you wrote a thing for Overland the other day that was, well, maybe not universally well received. <laughs> I thought quite well received. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you see the the thing that happened in Italy earlier in the week? No, what happened in Italy earlier in the week, Cam? I think it was in Rome. It was basically a carbon copy of the attack on the CFMEU just during an anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine mandate Uh, protest. Fascists uh, took the opportunity. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, again, insofar as unions are understood to 
and have assumed the role of protecting the interests of their members and the, I guess, broader social interests, they're going to come under attack. But, you know, I mean, I think there are certainly militant unions in Italy and more radical ones, and they seem to be relatively more popular than Australia. By the same token, you have stronger fascist and right-wing groups and movements and so on over there as well. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, insofar as it, the kind of anti-lockdown sentiment or forms of, I think they work, public health measures work best, obviously, when they have popular support and uh, and when people are convinced that uh, these are, you know, legitimate exercises in public authority and that comes under attack for a whole range of different reasons. I think the most pernicious forms of attack are those which are being mounted by and undertaken in the pursuit of, you know, commercial interests which override public health interests. And I think, you know, I'm thinking more about, I guess, the recent example in Melbourne and Australia is it's disheartening to the extent that it expresses uh, the privileging of the interests of the young and the able-bodied and those without um, chronic health conditions over and above and against those of the, you know, the elderly and um, people in, you know, whose health is precarious for one reason or another. And I think it's incumbent upon uh, workers and unions to do what they should do and extend solidarity and care for people who are vulnerable. That's, that's as far as I'm concerned, that's, a, that's real class solidarity. Uh, the anti-vax and anti-lockdown sort of movements have been, I guess, relatively unchallenged on the streets up until this point, for obvious reasons of there's a virus about. Uh, do you think well, that the, the left... have made some energetic efforts. <laughs> well, uh, un- unchallenged by the left, perhaps. Right. Just, just by our comrades in the police union. <laughs> uh, do you think the left should begin to intervene uh, in these things? On the streets? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean... I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm not convinced that's a good idea. And it's not because, you know, that there's for the same reasons that any kind of large public assembly under these conditions is inadvisable. I mean, that may change, I guess, or the, the medical calculation or the, the health calculus changes insofar as uh, the more people who are vaccinated, the less risk there is associated with public assemblages of one sort or another. Uh, I don't know because, I, you know, I think it depends on what you understand uh, motivates people to join these sorts of things and the means by which you can, if you want to, reach them. Is it, you know, to the extent that it's possible to engage in some kind of rational conversation, to the extent that, I mean, it, you know, if these kinds of rallies are, you know, targeting union offices or other kind of public institutions that, shouldn't be attacked and are worthy of defence, then serious consideration needs to be given to that insofar as they're, you know, I don't know. I mean, I can't, yeah, I'm not convinced, but, yeah, I, I remain open to the idea. I just think it presents a whole series of difficulties which have to be really carefully thought through. But certainly to the extent that the conditions change, I guess it becomes more possible to do so in a way that doesn't, endanger public health or the, the health of those participating and, and under those circumstances, yeah, maybe. There we have it. A little bit of cautious hesitation from the king of Melbourne Antifa. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, okay. Got a question that I think is going to be for me. Uh, oh, yeah. No idea how you gather the data on this or the data, but I've been wondering how much of the activity on the anti-lockdown Telegram channels is authentic and how much is from agent provocateurs. That's a good question and one you should uh, answer, Cam. And, and who are these provocateurs and what are they trying to provoke? That's one thing that I think of. Well, I think, yeah, it probably is quite tricky to gather the data on it. Uh, the problem with these Telegram channels and chats is that there's, the stream of information is just so constant that you can have an agent provocateur in the mix and it will just sort of get swept up in the wave of content and misinformation. But you definitely can, you can sometimes spot them, especially if uh, you could see them sort of uh, hanging out in other areas of Telegram and uh, talking about what they're going to do. But yeah, no is, idea is, how to spot them en masse. Is, it, is, is, that, is a provocateur different to a troll? I think... Because provocateurs, I assume, have particular intent. They want to get people to do something mm. very particular. I think that maybe what we're thinking about is like people uh, trying to pill someone in one direction or another uh, yeah. and recruit them to a particular cause. And you do see a bit of that, but it, yeah, I think it's very hard to say how much of it is authentic. And let's, let's take the example of someone who's trying to pill someone into anti-Semitism. I don't think it hugely matters if there's like somebody making a concerted effort to uh, get people to blame Jews for things if nobody else in the chat or the, the channel is pushing back on it. If the idea is just has a hundred percent acceptance from that group, it doesn't really matter that the person who is pushing it is doing it inauthentically. It has the same effect as someone doing it authentically, but you really do need that milieu to be saying, hang on a second, this isn't on and that's not happening. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I have a question here also for me. Okay. You, I can, can ask it. You can ask it. Go go ahead then. Uh, uh, Cam, um, the question is, what's the question? Uh, The Zodiac one. All right. Cam, um, I read recently uh, there were some revelations about the Zodiac killer and a claim was made about um, finally them being identified. But it seems like they've joined, there's half a dozen names that have been, you know, raised in this connection. What's your opinion? Well... My opinion, not that this is a uh, non-fiction criminology podcast, if there's a word for that, but my opinion is that the person who was recently named as the Zodiac Killer is not the Zodiac Killer. Dun, dun, dun. Why not? Well, one of the key pieces of evidence is that uh, his his facial scars match the police sketch of the Zodiac Killer, which was taken of someone who saw them out of out a window in the dark on the street, and also the police sketch artist had just made up the wrinkles on their forehead <laughs> because they thought they needed to fill out the picture a little bit. Right. So there, there, there is a striking resemblance between photographs of this person and a drawing that was just made up, uh-huh. which is perhaps not the greatest evidence. Okay. But, yeah, the, the actual question verbatim was why are there five different guys who on a, the available evidence are all clearly the Zodiac? And I think that's because... Oh. In the late 60s in California, you, there were no shortage of, uh, like, weird, violent men <laughs> who liked uh, creepy stuff. Yes, and, and one of them went on to great success. Indeed. Well, I, know, I know your thoughts on the Zodiac Killer case. You have a different <laughs> suspect in mind. <laughs> yes, uh, Senor. 
Edward Cross. <laughs> may or may not be the killer. I don't know, Cam. I, uh, I, I would not say so. I wouldn't say so in public. I'd be subject to all sorts of legal threats, I imagine. Although, hasn't he made fun of that? He has. He's, yeah, he made, okay. he's made some jokes about it, which is yeah, exactly what the Zodiac Killer exactly. would do. Exactly. Laughing in our faces. Uh, Andy, I think it might be time for a long-distance dedication. Oh, okay, Cam. Who, who are we dedicating this to? Uh, this one's going out to Cena in Aotearoa.
was uh, the band Algara with the track Edonistas from their new album, Asbzotos en el Tiedo Eterno. There you go. Now, Andy, I have another question for you. Oh, okay, okay. Yep. Hit me. Uh, how do you see recent groups like the National Socialist Network in the context of historical Nazi groups in Melbourne and across this uh, continent of ours in the 90s? As compared to the 90s? Mm. Well, it's been a while, I guess. Probably, I'd say that you'd probably have to go back to the 1970s, really. 1960s, 1970s to find a group that was openly espousing neo-Nazism. So you had uh, National Action in the 1980s and 1990s, and they were neo-Nazi-esque and and were neo-Nazi, but publicly they were not. They claimed to be mere, you know, nationalists. NSN, uh, um, you know, National Socialist Network as opposed to uh, National Action, they're, um, yeah, explicit. Um, so in that sense, they're relatively, well, it's been a, a long time, and also youthful, relatively large, and I guess also, as I think I've said or written, they represent a kind of the logical combination of a number of years' efforts by the key members, and I guess it could be read as being slightly concerning in the sense that they now feel like that they can, you know, rip off their mask and, and um, you know, be openly Nazi. But I do think that the, I suppose, one of the dangers associated with the exposés and, you know, the legal and other difficulties that some of the members are experiencing is for the more, you know, fanatical, yeah, there's a risk that they may want to not just go underground but um, seek to vindicate their cause through some kind of outrage or other. So, yeah, and also I think it's it's kind of it's interesting in that um, they're still, you know, relatively, well, very weak in the sense that they're not able, haven't been able to, and under the present circumstances we find it very difficult to mount any kind of public uh, presence. So no, maybe a flash rally here or there, but most of their activity has been, you know, semi-clandestine and also principally propagandistic. So aimed at generating content for, you know, the, the teeny boppers who, who follow them and maybe some older gentlemen as well. So it has a different perspective and a different kind of aim, I suppose, which is also different to previous articulations. And I'd be, it would be very difficult for them to mount any kind of public procession or anything of that sort because they are Nazis and, you know, those those doctrines remain regarded by the great majority as being abhorrent and um, they'd only be able to do so uh, with uh, police protection and I, I don't think there'd be much sense in them doing that. So, yeah, those are my initial thoughts. What do you think, Ken? I think they're very silly billies. <laughs> uh, Andy, we were... We we're originally going to be speaking to you, a historian today. So uh-huh. this is just a, a question I've stolen from that interview. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on history from below? Uh-huh. Uh, why do you think we need to know our history, not just and uh, not just focus on the glory of international struggles? Not just the glory of international struggles. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, um, well, you know, if you can do history, then um, yeah, history from below is um, well the most interesting, the most revealing, the most useful. And I suppose that's, you know, can be defined in different ways, but I guess those histories which document 
resistance and resisting subjects, resisting subjects, did I say? Yeah. And seek to analyse and excavate, I suppose, the stories that have been suppressed or that illuminate the experience for those who are more often, you know, the subjects of um, uh, oppression um, and exploitation. And, you know, those experiences can be useful in guiding our own sense of ourselves and our place. And to me, it's kind of just why would you engage in any other form of history? Um, I think where it becomes interesting is where those accounts, the ways in which those accounts are shaped, uh, by whom, who gets to speak about particular things, and what, if any, are the necessary political commitments uh, that come with wanting to tell those stories. And I, I think they, they do require a certain kind of political commitment to really resonate and to, and to have the, to be um, expressive of certain kind of authority that makes them useful. Um, but it's an ongoing conversation and to some extent, you know, it's about allowing the multitudes to speak and, and in a very concrete sense. Well, you know, in terms of media, um, th- these are democratising forces um, and critical scholarship is, is an essential part of that. And also, I mean, I just, you know, um, history I think is just fascinating. There's just so, so much, so many wonderful stories that are not just of use politically or analytically, I suppose, in terms of arriving at a fresh or a radical understanding of oneself and one's place in society and in a collective sense as well, but are just really you know, affecting, um, stirring um, a whole range of different levels. And, of course, those, those are things to be celebrated as well. And, yeah, that's what I find of interest. And also there's just so much and... Yeah, I urge everyone to, you know, read and study and, and contribute and be critical. Now, Andy, I've got a couple of cheeky ones here. Oh, yeah. I guess if you're going to have the king of Melbourne anarchism, you're also going to have a few jesters, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Someone wants to ask about the fashion and aesthetics of 90s anti-fascist <laughs> movements in Australia, and how can we learn from them? Well, it would be uh, – it is a recognised, I think, globally as a pinnacle. I mean, I, I guess, you know – I might have made some contribution at that time. So, you know, look and learn, really, is all I can say. Have you? Do you know what a Cyrex is or a C-Rex? Uh, I think they're a kind of cat, aren't they? Mm. And a Maine Coon? Some yes, sort of, another yes. kind of cat. If you could have one of those as a pet, which would you prefer? Uh, I'd say ACAB to begin mm-hmm. with, obviously. Well, cats are beautiful. Exactly. But in thinking about it, I mean, the Maine Coon, big, that's good. However, also quite furry. And mm. I suppose if I lived in a colder climate, maybe, um, I'd, I'd, I'd think about not so I'd think about it in terms not just of myself, uh, but what would be best for my cat. And in that circumstance, the Cyrex might be more appropriate. But, you know, if I ever had the opportunity, I, I'd love them both equally. There you go. Thank you. What I about you, Cam? I might go for the Cyrex. It's yeah. cute. Okay. Uh, someone asks if you will date them. Uh, maybe. Depends on what era they're from, I guess. I guess so, yeah. I mean, if, if I read their socials, I could probably, you know, have a guess. Uh, someone asks for a photo of your cat. I would love to share a photo of my cat. Hold that up to the microphone. I will. There she is. And she's, uh, she's a darling. 
That's about all of the questions we received, Andy. Oh, really? I, I would oh. say I received uh, more retweets and faves on my request for questions than I did questions. Oh, do do which, people even retweets these days? I, I guess just for future reference, it's not <laughs> terribly helpful. <laughs> I, I appreciate the, the, the dopamine rush of, of getting a fave, but it is oh, somewhat yeah. undone yeah. by uh, wanting something else. Yeah, so I okay. guess my question for you, Andy, is uh, oh. have you been – reading anything interesting lately because i know you're a bit of a reader um yeah i've been reading a few things but kind of um i guess the most recent was um michael warner's book the boys club which is all about the afl and i think i thought it was quite good um it's a survey of the last 20 to 30 years of um afl history and an exploration of the well the author argues the corrosive effects on uh Australian rules football of the increasing corporatization of the game and political authority being increasingly concentrated in the executive. Yeah, but I have also, and I might actually, I'm thinking about writing something about Peter Temple's books, um, the the Jack Irish series, uh, which are great. I really like. There you have it. I've just been reading books for by people we're going to be interviewing soon, so no spoilers. <laughs> Who are we going to be talking to, Cam? Uh, we are talking to, ah, no spoilers. Oh, no spoilers. Okay. No All spoilers. Right. Interesting people. Yeah. Very interesting people. Excellent. All right. Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. Okay. Thanks for, uh, uh, listening listener. And we'll catch you next week. Yeah. We'll see you then. Global Intifada is up next. See ya. Bye-bye.
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app.